Right. You can start, start recording now. All right. Welcome, Clifford Baptist Church. I'm glad you are here tonight. Uh, the volume is on. We're ready to go. Uh, thank you for being with me and sticking with me through this study, uh, through the Bible, seeing the high points of the Bible, kind of a mountaintop view in 32 lessons, uh, and God's love and God's stability and the, the, the thread of His grace that ties the Bible together. So I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to start tonight with a word of prayer. If you're streaming with us tonight, thank you for uh, being along with us. I know we've had a couple glitches, so I'm glad you've joined with us. Uh, and we know tonight God is going to bless us. Our prayer together is that He pulls up beside us and He is the one who teaches us. So let's pray together. Our Lord our God, thank you that we are together looking at the mountaintops of your word, Father, 32 lessons that take us throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's been a, a, a great study for me, and I, I have even learned so much as I've been reminded of the history of your word and the, the, the love of God that has uh, traveled with us throughout the ages, Lord, from creation through today. And Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. You have faithfully walked with your people and continue to do so. And Lord, we're grateful in this day and in this age you're walking with us. And these are some trying times for our country and for our world. And Father, we're so thankful that we continue to be your people. We continue to be ministers of the gospel and grace of Jesus. No matter what the world might bring, no matter what disease we might be dealing with, Lord, we thank you that your love supersedes it all and our commitment to you is above it all. So Father, we love you. We are thankful to be yours, bought with a price through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and a risen Savior who is a living Savior tonight who is with us. So bless us as we open your precious word, as we just look at part of it and how it ties into the entirety of the Bible. So bless us, we pray, we thank you, we are together under your banner of love, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we gather here tonight, we are on lesson number 27. Uh, we only have five more lessons that's going to complete this uh, jet study through uh, the Bible. But let me just give you that general flow, just a little bit of the high points. You know, we started, of course, with the book of Genesis. Genesis really has two points, the creation of the world, the universe, and the creation of a people, the chosen people of God, the people of Israel. And we studied four primary patriarchs of the beginnings of Israel in Genesis. Abraham, the father of the faith, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and his son Joseph. And we looked at those, those four patriarchs. And of course then, Israel enters into slavery in Egypt as we see the book of Exodus beginning. Uh, and their, their slavery there, but also their freedom there as God sent Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. They wander, they, and finally they inhabit Canaan land, the land that God had promised to them, and they lived there, and they established life there. Uh, they were also under his leadership through the judges and through the kings. They were under his leadership uh, through the speaking of the prophet's words to them. And the prophecy so much dealt with the coming of a Savior, the coming of a Messiah. So throughout the Old Testament, we see God's love 
and God's stability surrounding his people. He walks with them even when they fail him over and over again. And if you are a student of the Old Testament, you know that Israel had its ups and its downs. Uh, but God was always their stability. He was always there to lead them, to forgive them, to restore them, and to bring them on. Uh, but we know that as the Old Testament closes with the prophecy of God's words, indeed it closes with a prophecy that there is coming a Messiah. And as the Old Testament closes, there's silence for 400 years. And then the New Testament opens with the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. Uh, and we see his life in those Gospels. And then we see the birth of the church. Uh, as Jesus goes to the cross and rises from the grave and, and then rises on to heaven in the ascension, the church is then his ministry body. We are his arm into the world. We are his feet who go into the world. Where is mouthpiece that speaks to the world, the gospel of Jesus? So throughout God's creation of a people and throughout his carrying the people of Israel and at the beginning of the New Testament is a Savior is born. We are given that baton that we carry on in the love of God. And so we can see his love at the beginning and throughout the Bible. It is the thread that, by, that ties the Bible together. His love, His grace, He is walking with us, uh, and thankfully His forgiveness surrounds us. Uh, tonight we are looking at, after the birth of the church. It then needed leadership. You know, the church was born uh, with baby Christians. Uh, the church was a young church. People who were not Christians who didn't have generations as we do before us who passed the gospel on to us. The church of the first century was a brand new institution created by the Lord Jesus. But they were learning and they were growing and they were, had their failures and they had their problems. And we see that. But God raised up the church and God continues to bless and to use the church body. So tonight we know that one of the great men that God raised up was the man Paul. He started his life as a Jewish man named Saul, and as a young man, he was probably the greatest persecutor of Christians and the greatest persecutor of the church who ever lived. In fact, Paul described his life when he said, I am the chief of sinners. And I believe that he literally thought himself to be the chief of sinners because he assaulted Christians and he tried to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But then on the road to Damascus, we know that he was knocked to his knees and through the grace of God and because Jesus had chosen him as his vessel. Paul was saved. Saul was saved from uh, his Jewish roots, and he became one of the greatest missionaries uh, and the greatest proponents of the church of all times. Now, we have talked about Saul, Paul, in a past lesson. Uh, we talked about his total Jewish upbringing. He was immersed in the law of God, and of course, we know that as the Old Testament. He was immersed in the law and in the prophets of God. He knew them back and forth as a student of the Word. Uh, he was highly educated. He was highly motivated. He, his initial motivation was to lead the Jewish nation and to destroy the church because he felt at the beginning that the church was a threat. Jesus Christ was a threat to the faith that he held in God Almighty. He was the golden boy and the leader of the Jewish nation. Even as a young man, he was somewhere just in his early 20s at this period of his life. 
And then God confronts him. He is saved. A Jewish man whose name is Saul is saved and was converted as a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of his energy and all of his intelligence and all of his passion made a 180-degree turn. That church that he tried to destroy, that Savior that he did not believe in, all of a sudden became his personal Savior. And the church was the institution that belonged to the Savior, and he was its greatest proponent. A 180-degree turn. Saul was his Jewish name, and because he knew he would be a minister and a missionary to the Gentiles, he adopted the Gentile name of Paul so that he could more readily uh, relate to the Gentiles as he came into their communities. But it was a total and radical change. For me, he is one of the most interesting men who's ever lived in all of history. I would even go so far as to say I believe that Paul was not only one of the most intelligent men of history, I would go so far to put my foot through the door to say I believe he was the smartest man who ever lived, humanly. Uh, his writing, uh, his ability to express the theology of God, of course, under the inspiration of God. But God used Paul's intelligence as that vessel that he, he poured his theology and his leadership of the church through, that Paul's intelligence could get it on the paper. Uh, he was, he was a, an amazingly smart man. Uh, during his years of ministry, as you know, he was one of the world's greatest missionaries, perhaps the world's greatest missionary that, that the world has ever known. But he traveled, he personally preached in many, many Gentile communities around the Roman Empire. He led thousands of people to the Lord as their Savior. He established many churches. When he would come into a community, he would preach the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and there would be brand new uh, Gentile baby Christians born again through the preaching of Paul. And Paul would take those baby Christians and form a church in that community be it Ephesus or wherever he might be, Philippi, wherever he was, he would form a church in that area before he left, and he would leave that church to be ministry for Jesus Christ in that community. He established many churches. But our focus tonight uh, is on Paul's writing. Uh, during the days of his ministry, yes, he traveled. Yes, he saw, I would guess, thousands of people come to Christ in the midst of his missionary travels. But he also wrote letters and his letters were really sent in two directions. They were sent to churches, and they were sent to individuals. So two types of letters that you will find in your New Testament. And of course, you know that Paul, under the inspiration of God, wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, again, an amazing man used in an amazing way by God. Th these letters that we're going to briefly study in the next two lessons have survived the test of time. They have survived the test of study by so many thousands and thousands of scholars and everyday people who have referred to them as the Word of God. And God saw fit that not only did these letters of Paul survive, but they became a part of the sacred writing of the Word of God. They became holy writ uh, as God chose the writings of Paul to put in our Bible. Now, while Paul may have led thousands to Christ, the letters have touched and led millions to Christ. It's an amazing uh, legacy that Paul left in the letters that he wrote. So tonight, 
we're going to begin taking a bird's eye view of Paul's letters. In two lessons, we're going to look at the entirety uh, of the letters of Paul. There are, again, two types of letters written to church bodies and written to individuals. Tonight, we're going to look at the letters to the churches. There were nine letters written to the churches which are contained in our New Testament. So we're going to just take a brief overview of these nine letters that Paul wrote to church bodies. Uh, And by the way, just so I think I've made this point before, but how are Paul's letters uh, formulated and lined up in the Bible? They're not lined up by theology. They're not lined up by uh, the particular thought that he's expressing, but rather they are in line by length. So Romans is the longest, Philemon is the shortest, and uh, that's how they're listed in your Bible uh, in terms of length. So the longest letter uh, to the church bodies, uh, and actually in all the letters of Paul, is the letter to the Romans. I want to give you a very brief summation of the letter to the Romans. If, uh, If this kind of piques your interest a little bit, there's an entire sermon series preached from this pulpit on the book of Romans and goes through all of theology of the book of Romans. I'm sure I did not cover it all 100%, but I, I tried to do my best in that sermon series in the book of Romans. But Paul wrote this letter of Romans from the city of Corinth. Probably he was on his third missionary journey. If you remember, he took basically three missionary journeys uh, in the course of his ministry. He wrote this during his third missionary journey. The year was somewhere around 55, 56 A.D. Now, Rome was the most important city on earth. It was the center, the capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, It was the center of the world's government and the world's power. Uh, And although, this is an interesting point, I never really thought of this. Rome was founded in 735 B.C. So it existed over 700 years before Jesus was born. It existed long before the close of the Old Testament, but Rome was never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's only mentioned in the New Testament. I, that's interesting, and it's a point that uh, I had never, had never really occurred to me. But in Paul's day, over a million people lived in Rome, and 40 to 50% of those people who lived in Rome were slaves, servants, bond slaves. Uh, Rome had magnificent buildings. It included the emperor's palace, the forum, uh, the Colosseum, But it also was filled with slums, and Rome was filled with destitute, hopeless people. So there was the center of the world's power there. Some of the richest people of the world lived there. Some of the most powerful people of the world lived there, but also some of the poorest, most destitute people of the world lived in that big city of of Rome. Uh, The Roman church was founded, of course, Uh, by Christians, but it was founded ultimately by Jesus Christ, but brought together by Christians, and probably most scholars agree that the Christians who founded the church in Rome were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They had traveled there, and if you remember, Christians from all over, Jews, proselytes from all over the world uh, were in Rome uh, on that day of Pentecost. 
And so it is believed that those who saw the church founded there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost carried the faith to Rome and founded the church there. Paul had long wanted to visit the church, but he had not been able to get there on any of his missionary journeys. And so what you see in the book of Romans is Paul's teaching and Paul's instruction about pure theology to the church of Rome. He was unable to get there, and so he was inspired to write this greatest masterpiece of Christian theology that has ever been written down. Please take note of that. This is the greatest masterpiece of Christian theology in the world. There have been a lot of comments and commentaries on the book of Romans, but it's the greatest writing of Christian theology and doctrine that's ever been written. The letter to the Roman church is a little bit unusual because most of Paul's letters to the churches uh, were to correct a problem or to address an issue in the church. If you read the rest of the letters that Paul writes to the churches, he's addressing something that's going on in the church or a problem or false teaching or something that's happening in the church. That is not the essence of the letter to the Roman church. This letter, here's something if you want to write it down, it's very important. This letter was not intended to correct, it was intended to instruct. The other letters were intended to correct something in all the other churches, but this letter was purely to instruct the church on Christian doctrine. It's a very important point about the book of Romans. That's the bird's eye view of the book. We move on. Letters 2 and 3 out of the 9, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st uh, Corinthians was written somewhere in this same time frame, about 55 A.D., and Paul was in Ephesus. If you remember, the Bible teaches us that Paul was a traveling missionary. He took the gospel. He was an evangelist. He took the gospel all over the Roman Empire, but his longest stay that we know of anywhere was in the city of Ephesus when he founded the Ephesian church, which Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. When he established the Ephesian church there, he stayed as its pastor for three years. A very, very long stay for Paul. Uh, he, during that stay, was hoping to come to Corinth in the very near future. We see him refer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 6. Corinth was a very interesting city. The letter to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, of course, sent to the church in the city of Corinth. It's an interesting city in that it was a very large seaport city in southern Greece. Uh, it had a location as a major crossroad of the world. There were people who traveled from all over the world. It was on a major trade route. Ships would dock there in Corinth, and it would spill into that city. All kinds of people and all kinds of thought and all kinds of lifestyle from all over the world. Uh, interesting, uh, as we think about that, uh, because of this huge transient population coming into Corinth, uh, this city was so morally degraded. It was so morally debauched that the word Corinth was actually associated with filth and immorality and drunkenness. Uh, 
to be a Corinthian, to be called a Corinthian was not a compliment. Uh, it was a slanderous word to be called a Corinthian. Uh, Corinth was also a city that was immersed in false gods and temples to idols. In fact, the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was situated in the city of Corinth. And every day, the temple of Aphrodite would spill out over a thousand prostitutes onto the streets of Corinth uh, as a part of their so-called ministry to those who were coming through the city. So Paul was dealing with the church at Corinth, and of course both of these letters of First and Second Corinthians. Uh, the church had a huge amount of problem to deal with inside of the church of Corinth. It was immersed in this awful culture. It was composed of baby Christians who were trying to get out of the muck and the mire that had been a part of their lifestyle in the city of Corinth. But, of course, these baby Christians carried a lot of these problems into the newly born church. Uh, they were baby Christians. They had not shed all of that lifestyle that they had lived. And so the church itself had splits. It had divisions in the congregation. They were very, very immature in their faith. They were brand-new converts. They had a hard time breaking away from the immorality they lived in. They had a hard time breaking away from the carnal world they had lived in. You know, I think one of the characteristics of the American church is when people come to Christ, we have a hard time breaking away from our understanding that life is about stuff. Does that make sense? Our American culture is so much about stuff and getting money in the bank and living a successful life and working toward a million dollars, whatever it is. I think our church has a hard time breaking out of that mold of what true success is so that we are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I hear an amen? Do you think that's true? I think that's something that our church in America truly has to deal with. Well, the church at Corinth had to deal with these issues uh, that uh, were within their culture that uh, they had to deal with within the church. Uh, they had a, a time with immorality, drunkenness, selfishness, uh, as uh, you know, if you have read through the book of 1 Corinthians, there was an incestuous relationship in the church. A man who had a relationship with his stepmother, uh, a sexual relationship that was within the church and so far was gaining some sort of approval within the church family. Uh, however, Paul had to address that situation in 1 Corinthians, and he had to lead them that you need as a church to get that cancer out of your church body. To let that cancer continue to reside in your church body is going to bring huge damage to you as a church. Get that relationship out of your church. Cease a membership with that man and that person he is with. Uh, you have to terminate that church's relationship with these people. Uh, also, worship and the Lord's Supper were displays of confusion and selfishness. Of course, you know 1 Corinthians is very strong about uh, addressing the issue of tongues in the church. It was a very divisive issue in the Corinthian church. Uh, while Paul says, I speak tongues, and, and although I believe it's a gift of God, 
his message to Corinth is you have to control even the gifts of God within your church body so they don't become divisive among you. So the church was a mess in Corinth. But here's the most interesting point as I have read and reread these letters over the years. Here's the interesting point for me about Paul and his dealing with this church. This church was in horrible shape. People walking through the door drunk. Uh, when they had a fellowship meal, selfish people were pushing poor people away from the table so they'd have a seat themselves. Uh, the Lord's Supper was absolutely a travesty. It was a sad, sad church. Never once, never once did Paul say, your church is so far gone. Your church has, has experienced so many problems. Your church has so much drunkenness and immorality and all of the issues you're dealing with in it. Never once did Paul say, shut your doors and get out of there. Just close the church. You know, today, I, I don't remember the statistic, but every week so many churches close in America. But when we look at the letter of 1 Corinthians particularly, we know God can save any church. God can bring a church back to ministry and back to service and back to His love. And we see that absolutely demonstrated in the, in the church in Corinth. And we see Paul's word to them in 1 Corinthians as he's very, very corrective in that he wants them to be healed. And he wants them to be witnesses in this most lost city, perhaps the most, uh, most lost city in the world. Paul wants them to be restored. Okay, 2 Corinthians. This is a follow-up letter to 1 Corinthians. Now, again, you read 2 Corinthians, the church is still not perfect, but it had repented of some of its sins that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians. This incestuous relationship had been dealt with. It had been healed. And if you remember, Paul instructs the church, now that healing has come and forgiveness has come, bring him back into the church and restore him into the fellowship. Great teaching for us, amen? But he, 1 Corinthians said, you've got to get the cancer out. Let God deal with him. God did, God healed, God broke that relationship, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians, restore him, bring him back into the church fellowship. So he encouraged them also to be wary of false teachers. As you read through the New Testament, you know false teachers are rampant uh, in the New Testament church. So he encourages them to be a church that seeks the truth and seeks the life of Jesus Christ. It was a huge, changing moment for these Christians in Corinth. All right, looking at book number four, uh, the book of Galatians, uh, also a letter to a, a troubled church. Uh, this is actually a, a letter not just to one church, but a number of churches in the general territory of Galatia, and this letter was circulated among the Galatian churches. Paul had founded these Galatian churches in his first missionary journey. And this letter primarily confronts a group of false teachers in these churches called Judaizers. Uh, and what they taught was this. In order to become a Christian, you first have to be a proselyte Jew. You have to come to the Jewish faith and live the law and the rules of the Jewish faith. And then you can turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But you can't come to the Savior till you first come to the law of the Old Testament. And Paul used very strong language in Galatians to correct them. He was firm to teach that salvation comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. It is not by living rules. It is not by living law because we'll fail there. 
It is only by faith in Jesus Christ. You don't first become a Jew to become a Christian. You come to the Lord Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave in faith. That was his urgent message to a church that was completely off the rails. And uh, Galatians is the only letter of Paul in the New Testament that gives the church absolutely no commendation. He does not have a positive word for the church at Galatia. They were so far off of the rails. Paul is strong, and yet remember, his word is restorative. His word is, I want the churches of Galatia to be on track, but this is what you've got to do to get there. And you've got to be wary of these Judaizers who are teaching you false doctrine. Letter number five. It's the letter to the Ephesians. Again, this was a church in the huge idolatrous city of Ephesus. It had the temple of Diana there. Also, Diana's expression of worship was to to flush out prostitutes onto the streets of the city. And they would advertise the church, if you would call it that, advertise the ministry in that way. The temple of Diana was, of course, a false goddess, a false religion. misleading multitudes. Ephesus was a a very important political, educational, commercial city, second only to Rome. Uh, Paul founded the church, as I told you earlier. He stayed there three years. Uh, After Paul left the church and went on into ministry, he put a replacement pastor in. Who was it? Timothy. Timothy took over the pastorate at Rome. Of course, as we'll get into the letters to First and Second Timothy. It was not an easy pastorate, but Timothy was there. The church also had problems with false teaching and uh, unscriptural behavior, especially, especially behavior toward marriage and foods. Uh, there were problem areas there that Paul had to address. Now, the first cha- three chapters of Ephesians is theological guidance. It emphasizes the doctrine of... Of Jesus Christ, what you believe. It's doctrinal, it's theological in nature, first three chapters of Ephesians. The last three chapters of Ephesians focus on putting the, your, the, the rubber on the road, being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, how you live. The first three chapters are what you believe, the second three chapters are putting those uh, beliefs on the road, what you live. Uh, So, as we look at the last three chapters, they focus on Christian behavior. Uh, Paul is working on the behavior of these new believers in Ephesus. It is very significant. Paul is addressing the Christian family. And if you want to read a section that is extremely important in the book of Ephesians, read about the Christian's armor, how the Lord suits us up and protects us as we go out into the world with the gospel of the living Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Letter number six is the Philippian letter, the church at Philippi. Philippi was also a very, very interesting city. It was a Roman colony city. Now, Philippi was far away from Rome. It was on a different continent. Uh, And uh, as you look at Philippi, it was a Roman colony. And although it was far away from the, the head city of Rome, they talked like and they dressed like and they lived under the law of Rome. Even though they were far away from their home city, they lived in the law system of the city of Rome. So Philippi was known, known as a colony city. Philippi was the first church on the uh, European continent. 
It was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. And if you remember, this church was established as a result of a woman's prayer meeting. If you want to look that up, it's Acts chapter 16, verse 13. You will see that Philippi, the church, was founded out of a group of women praying by the river. Uh, Paul preached, and Lydia, who was probably the leader of that woman's prayer meeting and a very wealthy woman, came to Christ. And it is likely that the church of Philippi began in Lydia's home. It was, we believe, Paul's favorite church. He expresses much love for the church at Philippi. And Philippi supported him in his mission journeys. Even as he left them, they continued to support Paul. Uh, he wrote this letter from prison in Rome. This is one of the prison epistles. Uh, and he thanks them for their love. He also gives a good reference to uh, one of the members whose name is Epaphroditus. Uh, he also lets them know how he's doing. He's keeping them up uh, in his physical and spiritual state while he is in prison in Rome. He encourages them to be a church of unity. And he warns them, stay away from false teachers who would creep into your church. Stay true to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Letter number seven is the letter to the Colossian church. This also is a letter that is written from a prison in Rome. But I, I want to tell you, this letter is set apart from all the other letters. This is, this is the one church Paul had never visited. Most of the churches to, to whom he wrote, uh, not only did he visit them, he established them, and he had a personal relationship with them. But he had never visited the church in Colossae. Uh, the letter was written around 60 A.D., uh, but there was also a dangerous heresy going on in the Colossian church, and that's exactly why he wrote the letter, to confront this false teaching that was happening in the Colossian church. The heresy was called Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. Um, and here's what Gnosticism taught, that God is good, but flesh is evil. And so there is no way in the world that the Son of God could come to us in the flesh. There is no way that God would take up uh, as the Son of God the, the, the incarnation of human flesh. Because flesh is evil, God would not have anything to do with flesh coming to us. So the Colossians believed that Jesus was not truly human. At least these false teachers were leading the Colossian church in that direction. That Jesus was God, but he was not man. You know, we, we fully believe that God was fully God, fully human, fully man. But the, but the Gnostics were misleading this church to say, no, he is fully God, but no, he's not fully man. He would never have human flesh. So when he died on the cross, he only pretended to be in pain. Because he was fully God. He didn't have to, he didn't have to experience pain. Uh, so it was very, very false teaching. Uh, also, the Colossians believed through the Gnostics that Jesus uh, was not human. Uh, they dabbled in mysticism. And they even dabbled, you'll notice there's a reference to angel worship. Uh, you remember uh, the old uh, disciple John in Revelation, he falls down to worship an angel, and the angel says, Get up, man! Don't worship me! I'm just a fellow servant. But they were learning to worship angels in Colossae, and Paul had to break that, uh, that worship of angels there. 
Uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossian church to establish the doctrine that Jesus was fully man as well as fully God. That's the crux and the centerpiece of the letter to the Colossians. Well, finally, letters uh, 8 and 9 are First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. It was a large city, had about 200,000 residents. And Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He was received well, but he wasn't received well very long. As he was preaching, teaching Jesus Christ on the streets of Thessalonica, the city turned against him and became hostile to him. 1 Thessalonians, he wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica to encourage the Christians to stay strong within their culture. That letter speaks to us, doesn't it? Right now, we're living in a culture where the church is truly, truly, it always has been, but we are in a, a real challenge to stay true in the culture we're in right now. So 1 Thessalonians very much applies to us and his message to the church. He also answered some false accusations about himself. There were those who were talking about Paul uh, and his fakeness, that he wasn't a true apostle, uh, and he addresses that. He wants to make sure that they understand that he is a man truly called of, directed by, chosen by God. He comforted the church because the church in Thessalonica was facing persecution. He expressed joy for their faith even in the midst of the persecutions that they were going through. He reminded them to stay morally pure. The church still needs to be reminded to stay morally pure in ministry. Uh, and also they were to be uh, fervent in the way that they reached out to their city in witnessing. Uh, one thing that Paul condemned to the church at Thessalonica was laziness. Paul says there's no such thing as a lazy believer. Uh, there's no such thing as a pew potato. Uh, all of us have something to do in the kingdom of God, and all of us as members of the church and ministers within the church, all of us have ministry to do. All of us are different. All of us have a different combination of talents given to us uh, by the specialty and the hand of God. But all of us are called into ministry to exercise that which we are to do by His grace and by His blessing to reach out with the gospel of Christ. Paul said there's no such thing as a group of workers and a group of sitters. There's no such thing as that. All of us should not, uh, rather should be involved in ministry. There should not be one lazy believer among us. 2 Thessalonians is a follow-up letter to 1 Thessalonians, of course. Uh, the church uh, had matured. By the time we get to 2 Thessalonians, they had become more unified. But also persecution in the city of Thessalonica had gone up a notch or two between the two writings of 1 to 2 Thessalonians. Uh, the, the, the persecution of the church had gotten hotter, had gotten harder. Uh, so he wrote this letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, please persevere in what you're doing. Don't hide your faith. Be strong in your faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. He warns them again about false teachers. Of course, this was a huge issue in the baby church. Uh, it was a huge issue that the church could be so easily misled because they were so young in the faith. And so all the churches, uh, still today, certainly, uh, because false teaching is still alive among us, 
But, but the church in this first century had to be truly wary because of these baby Christians. Uh, he also warns the church once again. He's rewarning them about not being lazy, stay strong, stay true in outreach. So there is a little bit of an overview of the nine letters that Paul wrote to the churches uh, that's contained in the New Testament. Uh, they are a vast treasure of guidance for us. There's nothing addressed in these letters written 2,000 years ago that still doesn't apply to the church today. Why is that? Because this is God's Word. God's Word does not get old. God's Word does not go out of style. God's Word does not change. And another thing, people do not change either. You, people were much the same from the first century as they are here in the 21st century. Uh, the problems that you see Paul dealing with still do exist, and we still have to address them. So these letters are just as modern as if they were written this morning. It's amazing to me uh, how true uh, the, the Word of God stays throughout the ages. Well, next week, we will study Paul's letters to the individuals that uh, he addresses in the New Testament. That will be our Lesson 28 next week, the letters to the individuals. All right, that concludes our lesson for tonight. Thank you so much, streaming. Thank you for joining us tonight. If you're in the parking lot, thank you for being with us by FM Signal. And always, thank you for my group here in the sanctuary, uh, my students here. Uh, my prayer is that God is teaching us tonight, again, the general overview and how God's love ties it all together that we continue to serve Him and love Him. Let's have a word of prayer together. Lord God, thank you for the letters of Paul. Thank you, Father, that while he led thousands of people to Jesus during his earthly day, how many millions have, have the inspired words of Paul led to the throne of Jesus over the years? How many of these letters, Lord, have addressed the churches of uh, the first through the 21st centuries uh, and the challenges that we have and the theology needs that we need to know? Lord, thank you for these letters that obviously you used a very intelligent man, but these are words of God. And we are so thankful, Lord, to have them to, to bless and to lead and to instruct our church today. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this lesson tonight. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, stream. Thank you.